1: Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Jay Tenenbaum. He has acquired over 1,000 distressed mortgage notes and properties in over 40 states. Uh, Previously, Jay worked 20 years as a former debt collection professional. He is currently a partner and president at Scottsdale Mortgage Investments, where his firm has closed over 300 deals on mortgage loans valued over $75 million with an average discount of 40%. So thank you so much for being on the show today, Jay. My pleasure, Charles. Thanks for having me. So give us a little bit of a background, uh, both personally and professionally, prior to getting involved with real estate investing and mortgage note investing.
0: Sure. So I've got a, a very kind of a interesting journey, if you want to say. So Um, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Uh, My mom owned a catering service for, since I was a little kid, my dad owned restaurants. So, you know, I was uh, always exposed to to that life and didn't think, you know, really didn't know anything other than that. Um, The one regret I have in that is as I was, uh, grew up, I was a you know, busboy, waiter, bartender. I never, I had the whole run of the kitchen of the house, of the restaurant, and I never spent any time in the kitchen, so I can't cook, and I really regret that actually. <laughs> um, but one night, my father and I, which we had dinner just all by ourselves, which wasn't at home, wasn't at his restaurant, you know, it was kind of a of a pink unicorn kind of thing, and he's like, "Hey, get out of this business, go get a profession." I'm like, "Hmm." All right, I'm like twenty. Two years old i think at the time and i've been you know bartending and making a lot of you know, had a lot of cash in my pocket when you're know, a young guy and i kind of knew it, it kind of resonated because i i was working with guys who were like in their late 20s early 30s going you know you're having a great time bartending but i knew i like a, like a professional professional sports career i didn't want to be their age doing that still right so um i checked in checked out um how to you know go to law school go back to school finish my undergrad in a year which i, I was on a mission I wanted to finish my undergrad in one year, not more, because I wouldn't go to law school after that. And then go to law school the following fall, which I accomplished um through a little a lot of hard work. Um I had twenty six units the first semester of that of that journey. Um, and really worked really hard at that. Only it was kinda easy. I had two classes that were only paper, only had to write papers, and I had five hours of as an internship. So it wasn't really like I was in, you know the brainiac. Cause I'm not, I'm not wired for that at all. Um, anyway, got accepted to law school in California, not in Colorado, was kind of disappointed, but moved to California and stayed. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, owned a debt collection of law practice with my wife for 20 plus years. Um, got out of that in 2008, started investing in judgment liens in California from 2009 to 2012. Um, so now I'm starting to learn more about, you know, Title and priorities and things like that. Our model was very strict. We weren't hitting banks or garnishing wages, stuff that I've done for twenty years. Period. I was done with that, right? Um, and uh, so, you know, I learned how to how to do that because in my law practice, I was too far inside it. The only real estate experience I had was owning the houses I lived in, and so um, you know things changed there. I got out, I left that company in 2012. Got the opportunity uh, to do a, do a guys workshop in San Diego. Uh, No Buying for Dummies workshop in August 2013. And, you know, five minutes into the workshop, I'm like, you know what? This is just another debt instrument that I've been dealing with, you know, all my life, pretty much. So as I like to say, I've been in debt all my life, just not personally.
1: (laughs) Uh, So tell us a little bit about exactly kind of what your firm actually does now and what your investment strategy is.
0: Certainly. So um, we buy distressed mortgage notes. Nationwide, um, we, have, we have invested in over forty plus uh, states in the course of my career. Um, we're buying primarily now portfolios from large large hedge funds. Um, uh, basically, you know what a dist- buying a distressed mortgage is. You you know bought a mortgage, you stop paying on it. It gets sold from bank, the originating lender, Bank America, whoever, down to hedge fund A, and you know Goldman. Then Goldman resells it, or HUD, or Freddie, Freddie or Fannie sells it to a larger hedge fund, and then it gets you know kind of kind of coming down the food chain at a little different pricing. The discounts are still phenomenal. Um, they've gone up, you know, with the economy. They've gone up and down a little bit, um, as they as they will. Um, but you're still getting at a, at a decent discount. Um, our strategies have, have sort of evolved and changed with the times. Um, in the beginning, you know, several before the interest rate hikes, whatever, I mean, you pivot, you have to pivot, you have to be resourceful, right? Um, before the interest rate hikes, we were, you know, we're in the position, we are the bank. So we take our, we're pretty aggressive in, you know, taking our assets to foreclosure because if, you know, a mortgage note sitting on a shelf is not going to get itself out, for most part, right? Um, so we're pretty aggressive starting foreclosure and either we were, getting paid off at auction, meaning we're owed, let's say we bought a loan for $50,000 and we're owed a hundred grand. And with the economy being what it was, property values being what they were, you know, it some third party, you know, uh, investor at, you know, tending the live auction somewhere would pay, you know, $150,000, $200,000. Now we didn't get that extra money. We just got paid off hundred grand. Right. Um, and some of the, some of the the, the the results we got over the last couple of years have just been extraordinary about what these guys are paying for this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll tell you a quick story. There was a note, we, we went to auction in Hawaii and we were owned like three, 40 some thousand dollars. And um, we bought it for like two seventy, right? right. Uh, we owned it for like two months and it went to sale and the winning bidder in 15 minutes, boom, done. And the court required though, in that state, that the, that the bidder, the court confirms the auction sale. And because of the spike in COVID at the time, this was late 21, um, the court kept postponing the hearing. So while the auction was June of 21, it was postponed from September to November. It finally went off in January of 22. Now, the good news is that the third-party bidder at the sale in June still got the property. The bad news is because it was allowed to be bid again at, this co- at the confirmation hearing, Instead of paying three forty three for it, he paid five forty for it. Wow, I mean it's crazy. And I actually saw it. I was a vacation in, in uh, Honolulu a few a few years ago. Blue collar neighborhood, you know, just nothing to write home about. But you know, that's kind of a, you know this, the, the the things that go on now. As the economy has changed a little bit, and and it, let's say for example, I was owed. I bought it for 50, I was owed 100, but the property's only worth 120. Right. And let's say I wanted to take it back because I I could, you know, fix the flip and make it worth 250. I'm just, you know, giving a hypothetical. So because I can play with legal balance, maybe I'll set legal balance at full legal balance high. So I'm almost guaranteed I'll get it back. Mm. And prior to interest rates, we were okay with with doing a lot of that, right? Because our flips were, were, were outstanding. Now that the market's changed, we're more. If, this, if that scenario happens, we're probably even set it for less than what we owed, but more than what we paid for, just because we'd prefer to be taken out at auction still. Okay. We really don't want it. We really don't want to flip. Um, the other thing we do is we um, we've gone back to kind of our roots. Uh, we're really doing a lot more aggressive on doing loan modification with borrowers and keeping
1: them in their homes. Okay. So all these assets are all residential homes.
0: Correct. They're all secured by single family one to four units. That's our bread and butter.
1: Can you explain, you went back to it about what's owed on the property and then you also, you had two different balances, let's say for that, uh, you know, a regular one and a an legal one. Can you explain that?
0: Sure. So let's say you take out a mortgage for a hundred grand and you pay on it for five years and the principal and all the payments you made, um, a certain amount is applied to the principal reduction. And let's say the balance is $95,000 the day you stop stop making payments. That's called the unpaid principal balance. That number doesn't change. The legal balance, however, is the unpaid principal balance and then um, adding all the accrued interest and arrearages and penalties and late fees that accrue since the time you stop paying to the time you go to sale. And then there's also a third component called corporate advances, things that you pay as the investor out of pocket property taxes, attorney's fees, servicing, insurance. Add it all up together, that
1: becomes your legal balance.
0: And that's, you know, anything between what you pay for it and your legal balance, I call monopoly money.
1: Oh, okay, that's it, yeah gotcha. Yeah, because you can change that that's all up to your discretion at that point, correct? Correct. Correct. Very in- very interesting. Um so when we're when you're working with it, what, explain like a current um loan modification that you're doing cuz I saw loan modifications I had like contractors back in like 08, 09, and they got loan modifications cuz they were losing their houses and they showed me the paperwork and really what the banks were doing was taking their outstanding and turning into 40 year mortgages, you know what I mean? Um right. how, how are you working with with uh people uh, with homeowners uh, that have uh, you know gotten behind and how are you working with them now in this new interest rate environment we're in? Sure,
0: so um, good question. So first of all, we, have our, we do our loss mitigation because of our experience and my, and my team, we do our loss mitigation in house. So we're much more effective than mm-hmm. a big bag bank or even the servicers in, in, in general. Um, and in the past, when interest rates were, were, were low, you would set your loan modification. So when you're doing a loan modification, you basically can adjust any or all of the following: your principal balance, your well the legal, the balance, the interest rate, the term, and uh, the monthly payment. okay? Um, and typically in the past, we would set the interest rate. We, we, we typically as a baseline, we're going to reset the mortgage at a 30, you know, let's say 30 years. We're not gonna try to reamortize it over 20 into two and a half years, it's just too complicated. So we pretty much at the baseline, just do a new 30 year term, great. Um, the payment is usually structured with, you know, treating a borrower with dignity and respect and saying, hey, how can I help you? What can you afford? We're not demanding, you can have to pay this, you have to pay that like a bank like a bank would, because you know what, if they can't pay that their current mortgage, our demands will only go on deaf ears. We'll service or the default anyway. When they're offering to us what they can do, it, our default rate is, is minimized substantially. Um, interest rate, in the past, we would set it arbitrarily high, at like 7.5%, 8 <laughs> seven and a half, eight 9%, right? The idea was to incentivize a borrower, the concept, incentivize a borrower to ultimately refinance and take us out, fix your credit, whatever. That's a great, you know, conceptual analysis. Reality of life is a borrower in the Midwest is too concerned about buying their, their beer and cigarettes and paying off their truck, and they really will never, never do what's necessary to fix their credit or where they need to refinance. So it just becomes as long as they can make the monthly payment, they don't care. They really don't aren't aren't, aren't sophisticated enough to understand the more interest the lower that they can lower their payment or the interest that they're saving. They're just saying, hey, I can make it monthly, monthly payment. I'm going to keep my home. We're treating them with dignity and respect. It's all a good day. Now in this environment, since interest rates are 70%, <laughs> um, we don't really vary the interest rate much because it's still about the same, same incentive. What can you afford, right? Um, we want to keep you in your house. We don't want your house. Um, and what can you afford? And just structure it around really around like an algebra equation. What can you afford We give you a new 30 year term? The um, uh, interest rate is going to, you know, be whatever, what, what it, kind of what you solve for at the end of the day, mm-hmm. because um, and then the flask component is um, is you again. We play with the monopoly money. Either we've done a lot of variety of things of you pay a portion of what's the, the rearages, and we'll waive the rest, or we'll put the rest on the back end. Or if you can't really have a substantial, I mean, if you're making we're buying stuff at such a discount, and once you see the modification, as long as our returns on the monthly payment is good. The monopoly money really is going to break a break deal. I'm not going to sit there and, and kill a deal over you can't afford a $10,000 down payment to cure clear, clear your ridges. I'll put on the back end. Yeah. The
1: so for exit strategies that you have, really, you're, um, it, the loan modification sounds like really the best way because you don't have to go through the whole foreclosure process. Um what do you go through the foreclosure process very regularly? Uh, I mean, is it a high percentage, let's say, of mortgages that go, you know, that are not performing well? You know what I mean? Is that do you go that route or are you really focus on the loan modification? Because I would think that's kind of the best way of going.
0: Well, OK, we're, we're an investor and, you know, money never sleeps. So it's really a matter of uh, a couple of things. One is I would do a loan mod with everybody. But the but the common denominator is the borrower's got to cooperate. Yeah. Not all borrowers yeah. will cooperate. Um, so we're really, really a fan of, of, you know, initiating foreclosure, you know, pretty aggressively because I always say action dictates reaction. You start foreclosure, you call a borrower, you know, for three weeks straight, he doesn't respond to you. You start foreclosure, now he's calling you. So again, yeah. if they, we do foreclose on those who can't get out of their way. Now, having said that, we also buy a lot of, of, of um, reverse mortgages, so the borrower's already dead. Yeah. So you can't do a loan buy with a dead person.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the one of the things is that um, with these different uh, exit strategies you have and how you're dealing with non-performing notes, other than getting a large discount, which I was reading it was forty percent, which I said in the intro, uh, how else are you are able to mitigate risk? or investors are able to mitigate risk when they're doing this mortgage note investing, like you do.
0: Well, you're when you're buying it at a discount it helps, certainly, um, yeah. because you, you and that and the mitigation of risk is twofold. One, three. You're buying it at a discount, so you're, so you're you know giving yourself a nice buffer in case of the oops, right? It's, it's a lot different than you're doing a fix and flip, and you you know tear up the carpet, and there's a crack in the foundation. You're kind of yeah. stuck, right? Um, number two is we just briefly touched on only a couple of exit strategies. We've figured out over the course variations of of, of one or the other. We've probably got over twenty different exit strategies available to us, right? So there's always a a, 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 a pivot or or just a, a uh, you know, just, just, you know, resourcefulness of saying, Hey, if this doesn't, if, you know, you we analyze our, our analytical team will analyze our preferred strategy, but that doesn't mean that it'll be the strategy, right? Cause you can't predict a, a borrower cooperating to a loan bond. you can't, you can predict with a little better certainty than that, of whether or not you're going to get paid off at auction, especially how you set your, set your minimum bid at times, right? Now you take the property, but then let's say the property doesn't sell. Now you take the property back. Now what are you gonna do with it? I could sell it as is. I could sell it on seller financing. I could flip it myself, right? I could do a lot of, keep it as a rental. I could do a lot of different, different, different things. So we have our preferred strategies, but we have a variety of strategies. So that's number two to mitigate your risk. Um, number three, most important number three is do your diligence.
1: What are some red flags that would come up on your due diligence after doing this so many times?
0: Uh, the property's already lost, the tax sale. Wow. Um, it, 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 that's the line of the jungle. You, you, you very rarely can overcome most of what we find in diligence can be fixable. Mm-hmm. Um, but property taxes, now let me break it down. Your property taxes go from, I pay my taxes regularly. I'm delinquent. The lien is sold by that County. That doesn't mean you lost your property yet. It's when the lien is sold and the redemption period expires, you may have lost your property. That's, right. that's the, that's, that's when it's critical mass. Like, Hey, and you know, and sellers will sell us stuff that not that they're trying to pull one over on a buy on an unsuspecting buyer. It's, they've got a huge portfolio. They don't know what they have. And they can't keep track of it all. So we found a lot of, you know, a lot of times where the property is already lost to tax. sale. the, re, the redemption period is expired. There's nothing you can do about it. Things like the assignment trail from bank of America to hedge fund A to hedge fund B, there's missing something. You can fix that, right? Your custodian does a good job of, of, of fixing that. Um, that's pretty much the, the, the biggest piece. I mean, you, know, you, you might find, you know, in your title reports, there may be a title defect, like, which again, some of it's fixable. A Scrivener's error, you know, the little description is wrong. That's fixable. Um, other things may, may not be, but you, you're, you're reviewing the title, Paul, the title owner Owners and Reports very carefully when you're, when you're doing that. But taxes are the, are, the, are the big ticket item.
1: So when you were a... Debt collection professional attorney for 20 years. And how did that assist you with what you're doing now? Because I imagine in both scenarios, you were working with borrowers that are getting behind and uh, you know, you're working with them or you're correcting the situation. Is that pretty similar?
0: Yes. For the, for the most part, um, in our law practice, we were actually doing a lot of business to business stuff. So I'm still dealing with a, with a, with a debtor, but not necessarily a homeowner. Um, right. but, but it does, it does give me the experience to talk to, and when I first started out, I was doing a little modification myself. It does give me the experience and expertise to speak to a borrower without, you know, getting tripped up by, you know, There's things, you know, I I do, we used to get more involved in running um, out-of-state investing masterminds. And in that mastermind, there was two things that I always told, you know, in our lectures. And that was one, there's one piece, basically we're an open book, right? There's no secret sauce to this stuff, right? One thing I can't teach Second part piece, I, could, I won't teach. The can't teach is, I'm not gonna teach anybody servicing. You're gonna get, use a third party servicer because the application of payment, payments with federal regulations are just too complex to do it yourself. So we never advise that. Debt collection, I'm not gonna teach someone in class because um, again, 20 plus years, um, your head would explode if I gave you all that, dumped all that knowledge on you. And two, I don't wanna be taken out of context. Somebody says something stupid to a borrower and they sue you and they're like, hey, you know, they took, they, they, they took it wrong. So I won't teach debt collection. Uh, i i strongly recommend using you know building your team with, with professionals who are experts at it could you get certified in, in debt collection and, and, and credit counseling um our my my junior partner team lean in the in the uh Las mitigation department is is has 10 years plus experience doing that so i can i don't have to do the lump to myself he's very expert in what he's in what he does um so you I, you don't do this at all you just don't okay.
1: The um, one of the things is that you're saying about when non-performing mortgages, you can't get in touch with people. And this is something, you know, I, I see for many years of uh, self-managing and owning rental properties that, uh, you know, there's when people are getting behind, it's difficult to get in touch with them. Can you kind of go through, you know, high, high end? Uh, what exactly would be your process with a non-performing mortgage? Like, you know, how does that work where you're trying to. You know, contact borrower, you're trying to work with them. And where is it? Cause I know you said like your last thing is really the foreclosure, which really gets them on the phone. But give us, can you give us like a little overview of how you do that when you're when you're just getting into a non-performing note and working with that? Sure.
0: So basically, you know, it's kind of similar to like a you know, the sales approach, you know, touch, touch, touch kind of thing. So what happens is you buy a loan and You're getting, you know, the borrower's getting a notice from the prior servicer saying, hey, it's been, you know, fun, you know, know, being managing your default loan, but now the loan's getting transferred to somebody else. So I get a letter from you. And I've had borrowers call me up on the letter going, hey, you're the new kid in in town. Great. Let's work something out. Right. Um, Because there's always this 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 time frame where people react and you can't ever predict when or when or how Mm it will be. Um, And so they're getting the letter you know, first, and they're getting a letter from my new service and saying, hey, I'm the new kid on the block, right? Um, We're making the outbound calls, right? They can choose to ignore them or they won't. Then they get the demand letter from the attorney, right? Because I always say say we set a backstop. So we're not sitting around making calls and calls and calls for six months, hoping they'll get in touch with us. Mm -hmm. We'll give it a reasonable amount of time. And once the loan's boarded, we'll start foreclosure. Because again, we're actually trying to create the action to create the reaction. So they get a demand letter. Maybe they call the demand letter. Maybe they call when they get, they get served. Maybe they never call the property goes foreclosure. We can't predict that. We do know that when they do call us, we will treat them with dignity and respect and we'll work something out. All you got to do is get out of your own way and, and make it happen. But again, you know, the timing that people call, I had a guy call me one time years ago on the eve of foreclosure sale, right? Why he didn't call, the reason he didn't call before then was good was there was a reason he didn't call before that he called because he was living in minnesota he worked for the railroad he just got a 65 percent wage increase his child support obligations just finished and he paid off his truck and that gave him the ability to call me up and make a deal <laughs> I told you paying off trucks is important more <laughs> important than living than, and not because it's your shelter if you lose your house it's paying off your truck is just a priority to people
1: that's very interesting. What what do you have states that you kind of avoid working in or not as um, interested in working in because of the foreclosure process or laws make it more difficult? And which ones would you kind of lean more towards into uh, interest? Sure. In working?
0: So that's a very good question. So going back to something you asked me before with regard to my legal background, um, we focused, we touched on our responded with how, you know, I can effectively talk to a borrower, but my legal background also gives me the, you know, the insight and kind of the the uh, the objectivity and the resourcefulness to say you know it, to solve a problem like if if something if we have to make a decision of how to you know fix something or do something else and i'm not the bad client to our attorneys because we have attorney network all over the country and i'm not licensed at all anymore and and i'm not licensed in their particular state anyway so it's a matter of i defer to their wisdom and not want to be a bad client be an overbearing client so i don't know i don't memorize all the laws or and regular policies and procedures in that state but i can certainly give them, you know, guidance and say, hey, I would do it this way or, you know, if we explore doing it this way, does your does your state allow that procedure to happen, right? Um, but having said that, um, uh, so, what was the question? I'm sorry, I've left my train of thought. <laughs> About states, um, uh, states oh, that, yeah, states. you know, for- So I have I have a love-hate relationship with with the state of Illinois. I've done very well financially, but the time frames and the bureaucracy and the procedures, just are pathetic. Um, because of my legal expertise, I've no, we, we set up a good attorney network. For years, we always were told and advised by just the industry itself to stay out of New York and New Jersey, especially New York, because the time frame was too long. Well, once upon a time, we go to a conference, we find an attorney who says, wait a second, I can, you know, if you haven't started, for, if you buy a loan that hasn't started foreclosure yet, then we can do it federally, instead of state, and we can do it faster. So why people are running out of New York, we're running in, because we're getting good discounts to justify it. So, the, 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 and the last piece of it is, when you build a pipeline, like I said, we've got about 300 plus loans in, in our in our portfolio right now. You build a pipeline and you say, hey, some stuff's gonna take longer, some stuff's not. Like the story in Hawaii, we own that loan, it went to sale two, two months after we bought the loan, right? Some stuff we still, a year or two later, we're still at not foreclosure yet. You just, you know, when you when you first start out, it's like you only have one or two loans, and you're like everything is breathing down his neck. It's got to happen yesterday. But when mm-hmm. you build a pipeline, it's just the machine, and you just take, you know, and, and all it all works out at the end.
1: Interesting. So we, you know, we speak to a lot of uh, syndicators on the show and interview them about, you know, equity investing and stuff like this. And can you break us down of why, you know, debt investing is a great addition to a portfolio and some of the things that you like about debt investing versus uh, investing, uh, holding the equity position?
0: Sure. So, I mean, obviously, um, we've been fortunate. Um, it's a relationship driven business to where I've got relationships with, with, uh, with other hedge funds that, uh, you know, we, it's kind of getting incestuous. And as, as, as I started this business, I would have the fortune of, of doing business with a hedge fund or, or so that said, okay. And it's kind of like, I used to call it a forward flow meaning I could call you up every other, every month, every other month, whatever and say, What do you have now? Right. And they had inventory to keep feeding me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't really worked with, you know, tons and tons of hedge funds because I've always had this, this forward flow type relationship. So, with, so for us, we'd be blessed that we've got sufficient deal flow. So we're not out there marketing like maniacs with, you know, letters and all that kind of stuff. So you got, you know, we're, I'm lazy. We don't like, to, I don't like to hunt. So, uh, you know, we've got with, you know, people bringing us the hedge funds are bringing us their tapes right and left. Right. That's one piece. Two is you're, you're not getting the discounts in any market. You're not getting the discounts, even, even in a crash, when you can pick up a, a you know, off market wholesale property for dirt, um, you know, Going to be able to get the discounts that we can. Um, third, um, you just got you know the resourcefulness of, of the exit strategies. Right. So um, there's really, I mean, there's really no other, and, and the, 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 the different options. You know, the, the, the variety of options. You know, is, is what's it? Why it's, a, it's It should be a diverse in anybody's portfolio. But it's not, it's, it's, it's not a common, like not everybody, everybody's enamored with multifamily fix and flips. That's what's on, that's, you know, the wholesale, like that's, what's on everybody's radar, right? This is a unique strategy. It's not for the faint of heart and you got to be patient because again, not every loan you buy is going to go to auction in two months.
1: Interesting. Uh, So dealing with real estate investors and real estate owners for many years, I mean, what are common mistakes that you would see real estate investors or note investors make early on?
0: From a note investing standpoint, they're just not sufficiently tr- they're, they're, They don't have the sufficient expertise so today. The, the biggest thing is two, they, they make two big, two big mistakes, which one is they overpay for the loans. We don't know what they're doing. So one, they're not going to do very well. and They're not going to stay in the business very long. To, for us, it hurts because now our sellers are, hey, if I can get it from this schmo over here, I, why am I selling it to you for less? That's tough. Right, um, so you got to be you got to be sufficiently educated, sufficiently trained, or just tag along with someone, you know, partner with someone else who can show you the ropes. Um, that that I think is key. I learned that way. My first deals were with others that knew that, knew, that even though I had had experience legal legal experience with debt instruments, etc. I still partnered up with others who, who knew the, the ins and outs of the note investing world specifically to help me along. And that and even because I don't know didn't know everything back then. I still know everything. Um, so that that's a truly major important.
1: Uh, Jay, so going from a, a bartender, attorney to now into your current profession, how has your relationship towards money changed over the years?
0: Um, it's not so much the relationship with money; it's a relationship with time. Mm, yeah, you know, okay. de- de- you know, bartending. You're, you know, you've got you know one or two days off, and your and your evenings are you know placating others and enjoying yourself. But your life is you get home at three o'clock in the morning and you sleep till whatever, and you get back and do it and do it again. Um, our law practice, we grew to forty five employees, and it was too we're too far inside it. I had no time. Um, here in the beginning, I had no time because we're managing a business. But you know, we're blessed that we've got a terrific team um uh terrific staff and so we're, you know i'm able to, to manage my team rather than, than doing doing it myself so i'm always seeking the abilities to carve out more time in my life spending more time with my family taking more vacations things and things like like that um it, you know uh money helps facilitate that but it's really you know you can you can make you don't need a million dollars to say I, now i can take a vacation you just got to be able to say build your business so you're working, the proverbial, you're working on your business, not in your business. And my, my advice is, you know, life's too short and you just need to, to you know, strike the balance. And I'm a workaholic of my trade. I enjoy what I do. You know, I, I, I do adopt the motto of, you know, for those who love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And I shouldn't be subscribed to that. Um, but carving out the ability to say, take a step back and manage and delegate um, is what I've learned over the course, rather than just the, the relationship of money.
1: Oh. That's a, that's a very good answer. Uh, so as we wrap up here, just one last question: What do you think are the main factors that have uh, contributed to your success over the years?
0: Um, good partnership with with mm-hmm. with, with the current partner. Okay. Um, building building a, st- a strong team behind us. Um, you know, we very. My guys are, are my my our staff and junior partners are very very collaborative among each other. Um, we're very blessed. I mean, we're a small company. We've got 10, 12 employees and junior partners. So we all are, are collaborative amongst each other. And even in this environment where it's all remote, um, you know, the days of and there's some, there's, there's still, you know, we've all we, we 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 we've been exposed to Zoom by necessity back in, in 2020. Now we're now we're it's I think I I subscribe to the thought it's are we doing Zoom by necessity or by desire at this point? Because we had a firm retreat uh, back in April and as we're going around the conference room, I sat there and I'm realizing that while we're able to build a strong team because we can recruit nationwide, right, um, which is helpful, I realized that matriculation was such that the team consisted of, you know, I'm in, 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 in the Phoenix suburb, um, majority of our, our staff actually lives in Phoenix or lives in, 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 in you know, the Phoenix area. Um, and so I kind of, you know, get this brainstorm while we're sitting in this conference room going, you know, maybe, uh, you know, can we kind of forecast what the horizon looks like in the next couple of years, right? I said, you know, I wouldn't be, you know, too heartbroken. Let's all get a, you know, build, you know, get off the space buy a building or, or, or rent a space and, you know, in, in, in increase the collaboration internally. And everybody was like, wow, that's fantastic. You know, cause we collaborate well by zoom or by phone, but in, in office space, you know, it works out. Yeah. And one and our investor relations uh, person who lives like in rural Texas with their goats and chickens and all that freaks out and goes, "Wait a second, I can't find a. Pl- they will never be able to find a place in the in, in Phoenix area like that." I'm like, "But you know what? But the but the the um the our our atmosphere and our culture is like, hey, so you fly in, you know, once a month or whatever, right? So it's not prohibitive to say you have to move here. I would never. I would never do that." To a staff and say you have to move here. I've seen I've seen other companies implode when they require their staff to do that. So, um, so I think that you know the collaboration, um, the, the important key team members that we have is just what makes
1: our company thrive and grow. Well, that's fantastic. So, how can the listeners learn more about you, your business, and also you have your podcast? Learning more about that
0: certainly. So, we are found at uh, Scot- uh, Scottsdale Mortgage Investments. Uh, ScottsdaleMortgageInvestments dot com. Uh, if you want to uh, get on our trade desk and see what what things we have for sale, um, go onto the website. Um, it's, and there's a, cl- a button to click for get on our NDA, and uh, you know you get on our website that way. Our podcast is the uh, Real Estate Mastermind. It airs uh, air twice a month on the first and third. Tuesdays, we, were, we had a terrific guest yesterday, Mr. Charles Carrillo. Um, and it was a great show yesterday. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, that can be found at www.remastermind.live.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Jay. I will put links to all of that into the show notes. And uh, looking forward to connecting with you here in the near future. My pleasure, Charles. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great rest of your day. All right.